Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night. Thank you for joining me again as we continue our summer vacation south. Well, uh, funny that I should say that because we've got a bit west and, well, a bit north. There's a particular piece of West Virginia that I wanted to touch, and that would be Quiet Dell, West Virginia. We had a story last week titled Bluebeard, and the man of this real-life story was called by the same name, the Bluebeard of Quiet Dell. Quiet Dell had been the home of a fellow born in the Netherlands in 1892 with the name of Herman Drenth. His name later became Harry Powers. He had met a woman named Luella Struthers through the precursor to online dating, the Lonely Hearts advertisements in the magazine of the same name. They became married. However, Powers would take out advertisements of his own in an attempt to gain more money. Now, in my admittedly cursory research to add to the bit I already knew about this story, his legal wife, Luella Struthers, is only mentioned anywhere that I could read about Powers in this sense. They met through an advertisement, became married, and no further mention of her. If one of you children of the night happen to have more details, this is one that I've missed and it's driven me nuts. Write to me, please. Tales of the Terrify at gmail.com. However... What happened next would be that he would charm at least two women through these Lonely Hearts advertisements, lured them, and in one of their cases, family, to his home in West Virginia, where he murdered them in a basement garage that most stories imply he had constructed for this very purpose of a space to kill. When police began to investigate the disappearance of Asta Eicher, the mother of three, who was the first of the two women, they were led to Powers. With a search warrant, the Harrison County Sheriff's Department inspected Powers' home in Quiet Dell and discovered five bodies, the two women and three children. Powers was arrested immediately. Hundreds turned out to demand Powers be turned over to the crowd so that mob justice could be executed. Tear gas was used to disperse the crowd, 
Powers was moved to Moundsville State Penitentiary in West Virginia, where he was executed on March 18, 1932, at 9 a.m. I had come across this story initially after falling in love with the movie Night of the Hunter, which allegedly had been inspired by this true crime story. However, if you've seen it, you'll know that there is only thematic parallels between the two. Seven decades after Powers' execution in Moundsville, I'd stand in the wagon gate that he was likely executed at in the prison. I spent the whole night there with a group as part of a tour, and I have to say it was one of the best evenings of my life. I've included a link to the Moundsville State Pen if you're curious about their tours. I've unfortunately started doing paintballing in the prison, which is great if you're a paintballer, but terrible if you're interested in historic things that aren't spattered with errant splotches of paint. But let's get to our stories. First up will be a story from F.H. Arnold. Henry Ferris Arnold is another lost author from the days of the pulps, something that is quite surprising since The Nightwire was considered the most popular story ever published in Weird Tales. What few sources give any information about his life say that he was born in 1901, worked as an author and journalist, and died in 1963, but even the sketchy details, and his actual name for that matter, may or may not be true. All that is known as fact about Arnold is that his fictional output, at least in the fields of science fiction and horror, consists of only three works. The Nightwire, appearing in Weird Tales in 1926, The City of Iron Cubes, serialized in the March and April issues of Weird Tales, and a two-part serial, When Atlantis Was, that appeared in the October and December 1937 issues of Amazing Stories. Outside of that, Arnold remains an enigma. And now... H.F. Arnold's The Nightwire. New York, September 30. C.P. Flash. Ambassador Hollowell died here today. The end came suddenly as the ambassador was alone in his study. There is something ungodly about these Nightwire jobs. You sit up here on the top floor of a skyscraper and listen into the whispers of a civilization. New York, London. Calcutta, Bombay, Singapore. They're your next-door neighbors after the streetlights go dim and the world has gone to sleep. Alone in the quiet hours between two and four, the receiving operators doze over their sounders and the news comes in. Fires and disasters and suicides. Murders, crowds, catastrophes. Sometimes an earthquake with a casualty list as long as your arm. The night wire man takes it down almost in his sleep picking it off on his typewriter with one finger. Once in a while, you prick up your ears and listen. You've heard of someone you knew in Singapore, Halifax, or Paris long ago. Maybe they've been promoted, but more probably they've been murdered or drowned. Perhaps they just decided to quit and took some bizarre way out, made it interesting enough to get in the news. But that doesn't happen often. Most of the time you sit and doze and tap, Tap on your typewriter and wish you were home in bed. Sometimes, though, queer things happen. One did the other night, and I haven't gotten over it yet. I wish I could. You see, I handle the night manager's desk in a western seaport town. What the name is doesn't matter. There is, or rather was, only one night operator on my staff, a fellow named John Morgan, about 40 years of age, I should say, and a sober, hard-working sort. He was one of the best operators I ever knew, what is known as a double man. 
That means he could handle two instruments at once and type the stories on different typewriters at the same time. He was one of the three men I ever knew who could do it consistently, hour after hour, and never make a mistake. Generally, we used only one wire at night. But sometimes, when it was late and the news was coming in fast, the Chicago and Denver stations would open a second wire, and then Morgan would do his stuff. He was a wizard, a mechanical, automatic wizard, which functioned marvelously, but was without imagination. On the night of the 16th, he complained of feeling tired. It was the first and last time I ever heard him say a word about himself, and I had known him for three years. It was just three o'clock, and we were running only one wire. I was nodding over the reports at my desk and not paying much attention to him when he spoke. Jim, he said, does it feel close in here to you? Why, no, John, I answered. But I'll open a window if you like. Never mind, he said. I reckon I'm just a little tired. That was all that was said, and I went on working. Every ten minutes or so, I would walk over and take a pile of copy that had stacked up neatly beside the typewriter as the messages were printed out in triplicate. It must have been twenty minutes after he spoke that I noticed he had opened up the other wire and was using both typewriters. I thought it was a little unusual, as there was nothing very hot coming in. On my next trip, I picked up the copy from both machines and took it back to my desk to sort out the duplicates. The first wire was running out the usual sort of stuff, and I just looked over it hurriedly. Then I turned to the second pile of copy. I remembered it particularly because the story was from a town I had never heard of, Exabico. Here is the dispatch. I saved a duplicate of it from our files. September 16th, CP Bulletin. The heaviest mist in the history of the city settled over the town at four o'clock yesterday afternoon. All traffic has stopped, and the mist hangs like a pall over everything. Lights of ordinary intensity fail to pierce the fog, which is constantly growing heavier. Scientists here are unable to agree as to the cause, and the local weather bureau states that the like has never occurred before in the history of the city. At 7 p.m. last night, the municipal authorities... Dot, dot, dot. That was all there was. Nothing out of the ordinary at a bureau headquarters, but... As I say, I noticed the story because of the name of the town. It must have been fifteen minutes later that I went over for another batch of copy. Morgan was slumped down in his chair and had switched his green electric light shade so that the gleam missed his eyes and hit only the top of the two typewriters. Only the usual stuff was in the right-hand pile, but the left-hand batch carried another story from Exabico. All press dispatches come in takes, meaning that parts of many different stories are strung along together, perhaps with but a few paragraphs of each coming through at a time. This second story was marked, Add Fog. Here is the copy. At 7 p.m. the fog had increased noticeably. All lights were now invisible, and the town was shrouded in pitch darkness. As a peculiarity of the phenomenon, the fog is accompanied by a sickly odor, comparable to nothing yet experienced here. Below that, in customary press fashion, was the hour, 327, and the initials of the operator, J.M. There was only one other story in the pile from the second wire. Here it is. Second, ad exepico fog. Accounts as to the origin of the mist differ greatly. Among the most unusual is that for the sexton of the local church, who groped his way to headquarters in a hysterical condition and declared that the fog originated in the village churchyard. It was first visible as a soft gray blanket clinging to the earth above the graves, he stated. 
Then it began to rise, higher and higher. A subterranean breeze seemed to blow it in billows, which split up and then joined together again. Fog phantoms, writhing in anguish, twisted the mist into queer forms and figures. And then, in the very thick midst of the mass, something moved. I turned and ran from the accursed spot. Behind me, I heard screams coming from the houses bordering on the graveyard. Although the sexton's story is generally discredited, a party has left to investigate. Immediately after telling his story, the sexton collapsed and is now in a local hospital, unconscious. Queer story, wasn't it? Not that we aren't used to it, for a lot of unusual stories come in over the wire. But for some reason or other, perhaps because it was so quiet that night, the report of the fog made a great impression on me. It was almost with dread that I went over to the waiting piles of copy. Morgan did not move, and the only sound in the room was the tap-tap of the sounders. It was ominous, nerve-wracking. There was another story from Exebico in the pile of copy. I seized on it anxiously. New lead, Exebico Fog, CP. The rescue party which went out at 11 p.m. to investigate a weird story of the origin of a fog which, since late yesterday, has shrouded the city in darkness, has failed to return. Another and larger party has been dispatched. Meanwhile, the fog has, if possible, grown heavier. It seeps through the cracks in the doors and fills the atmosphere with a depressing odor of decay. It is oppressive, terrifying, bearing with it a subtle impression of things long dead. Residents of the city have left their homes and gathered in the local church, where the priests are holding services of prayer. The scene is beyond description. Grown folk and children are alike terrified, and many are almost beside themselves with fear. Amid the wisps of vapor which partly veil the church auditorium, an old priest is praying for the welfare of his flock. They alternately wail and cross themselves. From the outskirts of the city may be heard cries of unknown voices. They echo through the fog in queer, uncadenced minor keys. The sounds resemble nothing so much as wind whistling through a gigantic tunnel. But the night is calm, and there is no wind. The second rescue party... Dot, dot, dot. More. I am a calm man, and never in a dozen years spent with the wires have I been known to become excited. But despite myself, I rose from my chair and walked to the window. Could I be mistaken, or far down in the canyons of the city beneath me, did I see a faint trace of fog? Psuh! It was all imagination. In the press room, the click of the sounders seemed to have raised the tempo of their tune. Morgan alone had not stirred from his chair. His head sunk between his shoulders. He tapped the dispatches out on the typewriters with one finger of each hand. He looked asleep, but no. Endlessly, efficiently, the two machines rattled off line after line, as relentlessly and effortlessly as death itself. There was something about the monotonous movement of the typewriter keys that fascinated me. I walked over and stood behind his chair, reading over his shoulder the type as it came into being, word by word. Ah, here was another. Flash, Exepico, CP. There will be no more bulletins from this office. The impossible has happened. No messages have come into this room for twenty minutes. We are cut off from the outside and even the streets below us. I will stay with the wire until the end. It is the end, indeed. Since 4 p.m. yesterday, the fog has hung over the city. Following reports from the sexton of the local church, two rescue parties were sent out to investigate conditions on the outskirts of the city. 
Neither party has ever returned, nor was any word received from them. It is quite certain now that they will never return. From my instrument I can gaze down on the city beneath me. From the position of this room on the thirteenth floor, nearly the entire city can be seen. Now I can see only a thick blanket of blackness, where customarily are lights and life. I fear greatly that the wailing cries heard constantly from the outskirts of the city are the death cries of the inhabitants. They are constantly increasing in volume, and are approaching the center of the city. The fog yet hangs over everything. If possible, it is even heavier than before, but the conditions have changed. Instead of an opaque, impenetrable wall of odorous vapor, there now swirls and writhes a shapeless mass in contortions of almost human agony. Now and again the mass parts and I catch a brief glimpse of the streets below. People are running to and fro, screaming in despair. A vast bedlam of sound flies up to my window, and above all is the immense whistling of unseen and unfelt winds. The fog has again swept over the city, and the whistling is coming closer and closer. It is now directly beneath me. God! An instant ago the mist opened and I caught a glimpse of the streets below. The fog is not simply vapor. It lives. By the side of each moaning and weeping human is a companion figure, an aura of strange and varicolored hues. How the shapes cling, each to a living thing. The men and women are down, flat on their faces. The fog figures caress them lovingly. They are kneeling beside them. They are... But I dare not tell it. The prone and writhing bodies have been stripped of their clothing. They are being consumed, piecemeal. A merciful wall of hot, steaming vapor has swept over the whole scene. I can see no more. Beneath me, the wall of vapor is changing colors. It seems to be lighted by internal fires. No, it isn't. I've made a mistake. The colors are from above reflections from the sky. Look up! Look up! The whole sky is in flames. Colors as yet unseen by man or demon. The flames are moving. They have started to intermix. The colors are rearranging themselves. They are so brilliant that my eyes burn. They are a long way off. Now they have begun to swirl, to circle in and out, twisting in intricate designs and patterns. The lights are racing, each with each, a kaleidoscope of unearthly brilliance. I have made a discovery. There is nothing harmful in the lights. They radiate force and friendliness, almost cheeriness, but by their very strength they hurt. As I look, they are swinging closer and closer, a million miles at each jump, millions of miles with the speed of light. Aye, it is light of quintessence of all light. Beneath it the fog melts into a jeweled mist, radiant, rainbow-colored of a thousand varied spectra. I can see the streets. Why, they are filled with people. The lights are coming closer. They are all around me. I am enveloped. I... They are all around me. The message stopped abruptly. The wire to Exevico was dead. Beneath my eyes, in the narrow circle of light from under the green lampshade, the black printing no longer spun itself, letter by letter, across the page. The room seemed filled with a solemn quiet, a silence vaguely impressive, powerful. 
I looked down at Morgan. His hands had dropped nervelessly at his sides, while his body had hunched over peculiarly. I turned the lampshade back, throwing light squarely in his face. His eyes were staring, fixed. Filled with a sudden foreboding, I stepped beside him and called Chicago on the wire. After a second, the sounder clicked its answer. Why? But there was something wrong. Chicago was reporting that wire two had not been used throughout the evening. Morgan, I shouted. Morgan, wake up. It isn't true. Someone has been hoaxing us. Why? In my eagerness, I grasped him by the shoulder. His body was quite cold. Morgan had been dead for hours. Could it be that his sensitized brain and automatic fingers had continued to record impressions even after the end? I shall never know, for I shall never again handle the night shift. Search in a world atlas discloses no town of Exebico. Whatever it was that killed John Morgan will forever remain a mystery. The End That was H. F. Arnold's The Nightwire, as read by Jeffrey Welchman. We heard from him also last week for a narration as well. So you might have just recently heard about him, but here we go again. With speech and voice training at NYU's Circle in the Square Theater School, Jeffrey has a solid grounding in acting and voice. From 2006 to 2009, he recorded narration for web-based training and tutorials for the U.S. Army Environmental Command. He has also recorded IDs for Umbrella Radio. From 2010 to 2015, he worked for Sina, the telecommunication technologies company, where he recorded and produced narration and audio IDs for web-based training, Lectora, Storyline, Camtasia, and also produced short video pieces. In 2015, he was hired by Care First as a learning tech specialist using his specialty in digital media to create videos and training with original music and narration. Jeffrey's home studio is equipped with a Rode NTK and Shure microphones, SE Reflexion filter, and Logic Pro software with Apogee One digital interface. A link to Jeffrey's website will also be in the show notes. You can also see there uh, about his credits in podcasting, as a writer, as an editor, and as a musician. Thank you, Jeffrey. Next up, a story from Ben Solomon. Ben Solomon, a member of the Short Mystery Fiction Society, lives and writes in Chicago, Illinois. His fiction and film criticism have appeared in a number of small literary publications as well as online. Two selections from his hard-boiled detective series are slated for upcoming anthologies later this year, The Seamus Sampler 2 and Drag Noir. And now, Ben Solomon's Damfino plays host. An ancient host collected seven strangers, assembled around the formal dining table in the formal home, seven specimens from seven different walks of life, as different from one another as they were familiar. Their host, an aged scarecrow of a figure garbed in black from head to toe, pointed one bony finger down the center of the table. The left side of the mouth parted, drew one rasping breath. The words escaped in a wheeze, crackling like a needle picking up dust on a seventy-eight. I've called you all together because one of you is a murderer. The seven guests responded in very... 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Very degrees. Surprise. Outrage. Shock. Mouths dropped, hands covered mouths, eyes bulged. The left side of the old man's face crinkled and curved upwards in a series of deep creases. Watery eyes glistened. I've always wanted to say that. You'll have to forgive my little joke. Seven guests responded in varied degrees. Surprise, outrage, shock, etc. Said the old man. You have been served some manner of refreshment. Very well. Mrs. Fontaine's cheek rested upon her cupped hand. She eyed her host. I take it you are Mr... Damfino. Mr. Damfino. Yes, yes, but don't bother about that. Everyone has trouble with it. Always tripping over it. As I understand it, Mr... Lies. You're all here under one pretense. Or another. Not a one of them real. Whatever purpose you have for coming here is a load of bull. Mr. Damfino, Dr. Vorak said. Your language, please. We have ladies and a child present. Is that so? What if I advised you, doctor, that you were about to cash in your chips? What then? Would you have that as your final consideration in this life? Giving a tinkerer's dam about prosaic, off-color language? What would you say to that? You're simply outrageous, the doctor said. I refuse to honor that with an opinion. So the good doctor shuts his trap, eh? You'll walk plenty before we're through. You all will. Damfino's left hand, bony and chalk white, flourished a scarlet kerchief from a breast pocket. He carelessly dabbed at his tall forehead and swiped at the palms of his hands. He stuffed the red cloth back into place. Dr. Vorak observed, You are not well, Mr. Damfino. Eh? You are displaying signs of fatigue. One should take greater care with age. You must be every bit of, shall we say, sixty? Well beyond. Don't suck up to me, Doc. Seventy? You haven't the faintest. Mind yourself, Doctor. That goes for the rest of you. Every last one. Look at you. Oh, so curious. Oh, so ridiculous. You've been lied to and sworn at, yet you persist in remaining. That's all very well. We have things to discuss. 
The time has come as a walrus jawed, eh? Mrs. Fontaine flipped back a length of stiff platinum hair with a snap of the wrist. Of course we're curious, Mr. Damfino. We're human, after all. Yes, you are that, my dear. Damfino licked his lips with a bleached, dry tongue. Mr. Montague said, Probably some sales pitch. Damfino's narrow, aquiline nose rose heavenward. Mmm, you could say I'm ready to barter. But you'd have to believe me. No one ever believes me at first. They never do, but you'll come around. You all will, one way or another. Mr. Musial cracked his knuckles. There's no reason we should buy one word of this. No? Nope. What if you'd learned I've brought you here on a matter of life and death? Boils down to death, mostly for that matter, eh? What would you say to that? Musial said, I'd say you're full of beans. Yes, you would. Damfino rubbed his hands in a rolling motion. Perhaps a few parlor tricks can improve this reception. Parlor tricks? Musial said. Oh, really, Mr. Damfino? Mrs. Fontaine said. Mr. Montague, you hold silver in your pocket totaling seventy cents. Mrs. Fontaine, you carry an invitation in your purse. Our Mr. Winkle here wears a good luck charm on his watch fob. Come off it, Damfino, Dr. Vorak smiled. You can do better than that. Pressing me, Doc? If that's your wish, I'll oblige you. Damfino squinted a quivering eye. Among the contents of your wallet, you, Doctor, hold a private letter from a married woman who is not your wife. This letter carries an air of jasmine, lightly scented and slightly cheap. The words carry the weight of desperation. Your paramour counts the days, Doctor. The hours, the minutes. That's enough, Damfino, Dr. Vorak said. Mm, she longs for your warmth, your embrace, the strength of your arms. I said enough. She begs help with spelling, too. Damfino all but closed his eyes. Mr. Musial, your wife preserves a lock of hair belonging to her first husband, lately deceased. She never mentions it, but you and she have no secrets, eh? You regularly rummage through all her hiding places, don't you, Mr. Musial? Mr. Musial clasps his hands tightly before him. Mrs. Fontaine, my dear, I have precious little discretion. Or haven't you noticed? Shall we announce how you earned your keep when you first ran away from home? All those years ago? That won't be necessary, Mrs. Fontaine said. Quite unnecessary. Damfino's tongue darted out one corner of his mouth. I thought not. So you've done your homework, Dr. Vorak said. What's your game? I do not play games, Doctor. Not even chess. Don't egg him on, Doc, Musial said. No, Mrs. Fontaine said. Hear him out. Let's get this over with and be on our way. On your way? Damfino cackled softly. You wouldn't be in such a rush if you knew. If only you knew... All right, Mr. Damfino, Vorak said. We will bow to the lady's request. Please get on with it. Very well, Damfino said. Very well. First things first. That's always the best way, is it not? The first thing, how should one put it? There's really no use in beating around the bush. So here it is. You're all going to die. Eh? And I mean to say momentarily. Most momentarily. You're scaring the child, Damfino, Dr. Vorak said. 
Damfino peered over the rims of his spectacles down the long reflective table. He smiled warmly upon Woodrow Coltrane. Woody, do I scare you? You don't frighten me any, the nine-year-old said. He raised his shoulders and glanced up at the adults flanking him. Good boy, Damfino said. You won't remember me, Woody, but we're old friends, eh? I take a doctor. You're not afraid? Poppycock, Dr. Vorak replied. Oh, doctor, language, please. I almost soiled myself. This man is disgusting, Mrs. Fontaine said. I see, Damfino laughed, that this crowd requires more than mere parlor tricks. Ah, me, always the way. A gasp escaped Damfino's rounded mouth. His fingers clenched, the body straightened, went rigid. The facial skin drained to the lightest shade of gray. The eyes rolled blank. The head fell forward to the table with a considerable thump. Tittering, clucks, other sounds of amusement swept down the table. The guests turned to each other and shared their enjoyment. Dr. Vorak rose with a great sense of calm. He threw out his arms in mock surrender. A casual stride brought him to Damfino's chair. He felt for the elderly man's pulse at the wrist at the carotid artery. Bewilderment overtook the medical man's face. He bent quickly over the lifeless shape face to face with Damfino. His thumb pried open one eyelid. Embolism, Vorak said. Stroke, perhaps. He shut the lid, straightened up, adjusted his suit coat, sighed. His gaze addressed the table. I'm afraid he's left us. He's actually dead? Mrs. Fontaine said. Expired, just like that? Montague said. The doctor closed his eyes, lips pursed, nostrils pinched. The head nodded once. Musial tossed back the whiskey in front of him. The doctor returned to his chair, picked up saucer and cup, sipped delicately at his coffee. Woody, Mrs. Fontaine said. I'm sorry you had to see that. It's okay, Woody said. The doctor said, If you don't mind, I'll finish my coffee and then see about finding a telephone. Damfino's head jerked up. Don't bust a gut, Doc. Brown spray flew from the doctor's mouth and peppered the tablecloth. The saucer and cup fell to the floor. The other guests displayed varying degrees of etc. You, you, Dr. Vorak burbled. Eh? Damfino's eyes narrowed. You're dead. Am I? I don't appear to be. Eh? Care to check my vitals again? The doctor's mouth popped open and closed. He gaped at Damfino in dumb surprise. Doc, Damfino said. You look as stupid as a goldfish. Damfino stood, slowly appeared taller than before. His guest felt an unseen shadow fall across them. Unless you require further proof, you have a decision to make. The guest fastened their gaze upon Damfino. I have already told you the worst of it. Imminent death, there it is. You win some, you lose some. In these matters, however, there is sometimes granted a certain leeway, a bit of jockeying. A mortal maneuvering, if you will. This, I am pleased to tell you, is one of those times. Damfino surveyed the eyes upon him. No interruption came. He lowered to his chair and continued. I have a proposition to put to this table. If you can reach agreement, come to a unanimous decision. One of your lives will be spared. I shouldn't have to point out that this is most unusual. Fate in the hands of mortals. 
Most unusual, Mrs. Fontaine said. That's why we're here? Crazy talk, Musial said. Am I going too fast? Damfino said. You're talking utter fantasy, the doctor said. Pure nonsense. You must be getting lightheaded. Sounds a bit fantastic, Damfino said. I'll hand you that, but practically no one gets a shot at rolling the dice like this. I'm handing you a once in an eternity opportunity. I've heard more than enough, Mrs. Fontaine said. Musial stood and declared, I'm with the lady. Mr. Musial, Damfino's lips strained into a parted smile. Are you saying you wish to drop out? Yes. Eh? Yes. One more time, please. I wish to drop out, damn you. There was no clap of thunder, no dimming of lights, no fanfare. Musial simply went stiff as a board and toppled backwards, like a two-by-four. Mrs. Fontaine provided an appropriate shriek. Dr. Vorak raced around the table and knelt at Musial's side. Vorak played hide-and-seek with Musial's pulse. He lost. Damfino said, Dad is a mackerel? What did you do to him? Dr. Vorak said. Take your seat, doctor. I do insist. The doctor returned to his chair at one shaky legs. You're not looking well, doctor, Damfino said. Displaying signs of fatigue, eh? But it's much too late for any of that. Damfino reached for the tiny silver bell beside his water glass. He grasped it lightly between thumb and finger and roused it with the slightest shake. A hooded servant appeared from the shadows of the room. Damfino said, Remove this axe, Mr. Musial. The servant grasped the body at the wrists and dragged it off. Where were we? Damfino said. Making a decision, wasn't it? Yes, if this table can agree on one life to be spared, it will be so. Damfino drummed his tapered fingers on the surface of the table. His guest avoided eye contact. Mrs. Mackenzie? Mr. Montague? Mr. Winkle? You've been mostly silent. Anything to say for yourselves? I don't know what to say, Winkle said. I don't suppose you would. I see this requires a bit of help. Woody, maybe you can start the ball rolling for us. Woodrow, Jameson, Coltrane. How old are you? Woody shrugged his shoulders. Nine. What do you do with yourself? School, is that what you mean? That's fine, Woody. You like school? Not really. Of course not. Would you like to say anything else for yourself? No, I guess not. Oh, leave the child alone, Mrs. Fontaine said. I'm okay, ma'am. Let's keep this moving, Damfino sneered. Mr. Raymond Archibald Winkle, you're up. Me, sir? Yes, sir. You, sir. What about it? Tell this table what it is you do do. Winkle brushed each side of his large mustache with his index finger. The popular phrase, I believe, is industrialist. That's how I'm described whenever I happen to be written up. Industrialist. He removed a pocket watch, frowned at the timepiece, wound it. Once upon a time, I was an inventor and met with some success. That led me into manufacturing and whatnot. For several decades now, I founded and sold many companies. Again, he displayed annoyance with the watch. Does anyone have the time? Are you blind as a bat? The point you've missed. 
Bampino's side, is that there is no time left. The clocks run out. Time's up. I could go on and on. Mr. Winkle, your watch has stopped, eh? Yes. And winding does nothing for it. Yes. There you are. This is true, Crossroads. You are neither here nor there. This is not the past, nor is it the future. Then again, it's not properly the present. You're all sort of in between before and after, if you see what I mean. Damfino smiled to himself. No one else smiled. He said, Are you married, Mr. Winkle? Yes. Any children? No. Anything else to say for yourself? Such as? A case to let you live. If money made any difference. Hmm. Shall we ask your neighbors to compare bank accounts? Should we consider Woody as good as six feet under right now? I didn't mean... I'm afraid you'll find it most awkward, attempting to bribe the dead. Then you find me at a loss, sir. That's one way to put it. Make your case, Mr. Winkle. Convince these people why you're not ready to start pushing up daisies. I suppose I have every right to live as much as anyone else, and every right to die. There are two sides to every coin. You're a weak negotiator, Mr. Winkle. I expected better. Mr. Montague, your turn. Montague cleared his throat. He reached for a water glass, trembled, took a gulp. The rest of the table followed suit. This, Dampino said, is Claude V. Montague. That's me. Family man? Yeah, I've got a wife, two kids. How do you pay your way, Mr. Montague? I sell appliances. Important work. Important? Geez. No, are you kidding me? I'll say most of them are pretty good pieces of equipment, but I'd never buy one of her toasters, to be honest. I'm just not up to par, if you know what I mean. When it comes to toasters, your company is not that hot. You should be in Reader's Digest. Of course, stealing from your employer is no kind of joke, so the world won't exactly miss you. Miss me? I've got two little kids. Of course, of course, but the world at large will hardly feel your loss. Sure, I guess not. I never negotiated any world treaties or won any of them prizes, if that's what you're trying to say. Maybe I don't save lives like the doctor here, Dr. Vorak interrupted. I'm merely a general practitioner, Mr. Montague. I've had my share of the occasional emergency, but few of those have dealt with life and death, Damfino said. Yes. There are plenty of everyday sawbones in the world, Damfino said. If you wish to put it that way, I sure do. And some perform secretive operations after hours, don't they? Under the table, so to speak, back of the alley. And they're not always successful, are they? Dr. Vorak had nothing to say. And you, Mrs. Henrietta Fontaine, what have you achieved in this... I've done my share of volunteering, the church drives, made donations and the like. I don't suppose more than anyone else. I am known as one of the best bridge partners of the club. Is that a fact? Still good at tricks? Damfino said. Naturally enough, none of my trophies save lives. No, I don't suppose they have. But I never miss a tournament. Why should your life be spared? 
I'm no philosopher, Mr. Damfino, but I marvel at the question. I wonder if there really is an answer. You'll never know. As for you, Mrs. Alice Mackenzie, you've kept to yourself. Yes, sir, the shy, retiring type. No, sir. Illuminate us. I'd rather not, sir. No. I could make up some tall tale, something juicy and just right to fit the bill. I could, but I've made my mind up not to, sir. I've done plenty to be ashamed of, nothing to be proud of. I'll leave it at that, sir. Thank you. You sure? Yes, sir. Have it your own way. So where does that leave us? This is all too absurd, Mrs. Fontaine said. Damfino said. Would you like me to have another spell? No, Mrs. Fontaine said. Anything but that. I haven't got all day, Damfino said. Let the kid live, Montague said. Little Woody scrunched up his little face. Mrs. Fontaine said, Yes, that's the one choice that makes any kind of sense. No, Woody said. You have something to say? Damfino said. They don't know, Woody turned to the rest of the table. You see, there's this thing. I've got a... It's just a disease, Woody, Damfino said. Yeah, I've got a blood disease. Yes, you can see it in the eyes, Dr. Vorak said. How serious is it, Woody? Mrs. Fontaine said. About as serious as she gets. I don't have long. Soon, that's the way it crumbles. So if you're going to pick somebody, shouldn't it be someone who's going to have longer, Mr. Damfino? You don't need to sell me, Woody. Geez, kid, Montague said. That's tough. It's okay, Woody said. I'm used to it. I've been counting down most of my life. Damfino pinched his lip with his left hand. False modesty and misfits. Perhaps I'll never hear it. No consensus. No argument. Women and children first and so on. Ugh. Eternal sentimental. Eternally vacant. So predictable. So very disappointing. Always disappointing. An immortal lost cause. Damfino rang the silver bell. The guests expressed no surprise. No outrage. No shock. Each face a mask of no expression. These are ready to leave, Damfino said. A garbed servant led Mrs. Fontaine, Mrs. Mackenzie, Woody, Mr. Winkle, Mr. Montague, Dr. Vorak. They followed through the small door into a dark passage. Damfino slumped back, hands to his breast. He took a moment before ringing again, before receiving his next set of guests. That was Ben Solomon's Damfino place host as read by me. You've heard enough of me, so link will be in the show notes. And that will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. 